0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the LSE Focal Point Podcast. I'm the host of this episode, Dean. Today, I'm excited to be joined by the world-renowned economist, Jeffrey Sachs. Professor Sachs, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Good to be with you. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. So to start things off, can you walk us through the motivations behind your work? What motivated you to devote your career to solving global issues of economic development, poverty alleviation, health and aid policy, and environmental stability. The, the choice
1: of uh, economics uh, came pretty early on for me. Uh, I was actually in high school, finishing up high school. Uh, I went to visit a pen pal in what was then East Germany, uh, living in East Berlin, and I was completely fascinated by a totally different society operating with different rules. And I did not really understand uh, why these differences, uh, what the background history was, how to understand them. Uh, and so I went from that summer uh, just before university to uh, the start of university determined to find some answers to those questions. And that got me into economics Uh, a long time ago, more than 50 years ago now, as a freshman uh, at Harvard College. And I fell in love with the field
0: and I've been in love with it ever since. Thank you for sharing that inspiring story. And now a lot of students that are passionate about their field of studies and desire to make a change in our world are often turned away by the long and difficult journey in academia along with the pressure of student loans and attractiveness compensations of other careers. What is your perspective on these issues and what are some of the actions individuals can take to improve the circumstances?
1: Well, I, I do think that it's uh, really wonderful when you are doing what you want to do uh, and uh, following your sense of uh wanting to make a contribution is is a fantastic approach. So I would encourage people to persevere in that. And there are many paths to making a contribution. There are many paths to uh, uh, very interesting and worthwhile careers. Uh, Indeed, the topics that uh, one works on, uh, the the field of study, have so many choices. But if you're directed towards uh, the big challenges that we have in the world today, uh, having a fairer world, uh, an environmentally sustainable world, a peaceful world, uh, boy, I think you're making a great contribution. So I would encourage people to uh, follow uh, a path that really engages them deeply. Uh, and uh, where they feel that this is something they want to do. Because a lot of what you need to do in studying and work is a a grind. Uh, There's a a lot of uh, uh, learning, a lot of problem sets, a lot of essays, a lot of things that uh, are not so much fun when you're doing them. So it's really good to have uh, in mind a purpose uh, why you're doing all of those things to help you get through uh, what can be a lot of drudgery or just a, a lot of uh,
0: slogging and hard work makes sense. And now let's dive into the various global issues addressed in your works and advocacy. From your experiences in advising countries on economic reform and stability efforts, what are the takeaways from those experiences, and what were the main barriers during the impl- during the implementation of those methods?
1: I've seen a a lot of uh, crises and a lot of different kinds of economies and a lot of uh, different uh, conditions of life from extreme poverty to, to great wealth. It always surprises me how all of this diversity coexists on a small interconnected planet. So I've always been driven by the basic idea that in our world today with all our know-how and technology, it's a little bit absurd and certainly sad and correctable that we have people living in extreme duress, in extreme poverty, uh, in extreme deprivation. Uh, and I think that leads me uh, almost uh, as an instinct to want to solve the problem. If you see poverty and you've just uh, come from a high-income country and suddenly you're uh, you know the plane has dropped you off someplace and you're uh, in a village that lacks safe water and a clinic you you say this is absurd this why is the world like this uh you start pursuing different levels of explanation: some political uh, some economic some historical uh but over time I think uh, you gain some sense of what can make a difference, of what practically might be achievable. Of course, the world's not organized for easy answers, <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, it, there can be a lot of frustrations as well, but I've learned and I've tried to understand context a lot. Uh, I've tried to understand historical, geographical uh geopolitical context uh because it's really hard to puzzle out uh, a crisis or a difficult problem without the context uh, coming uh, in into place and so i try to get a uh a 360 degree view of the problem um and that means looking at it from a lot of different vantage points uh, and also, of course, to understand the vantage point as seen by the uh, those who are in the midst of the crisis itself. And from that and the experience and what we know from economic theory and other approaches, uh, come up with something useful, some practical suggestions. Uh, and. Uh, I guess uh, another thing that I've tried to do and think uh, I've at least in part learned to do is to uh, find answers that are actionable uh, because governments work in certain routinized ways. Politics works in particular ways. Financial markets work in particular ways. So even if you have a great solution, if it doesn't fit the tools as they're being deployed, it's going to be hard to put your solution into operation maybe you really do have to invent something completely new that's sometimes the case but often it means adjusting what you're thinking or recommending so that it can actually be
0: uh, dealt with with the tools at hand thank you for sharing those insights and diving into one of the more specific projects uh in the millennium project and alleviating poverty from african countries can you walk through the framework behind that project you proposed on
1: the idea of the millennium villages project was to understand how uh, rural areas in extreme poverty in very different ecological settings some in the rainforest some on the forest margin some in drylands. Some in desert, uh, how those different uh, conditions could be addressed with technologies like off grid power, or even in the early days, just using click phones or smartphones for information management uh, or other kinds of uh, interventions uh, in healthcare delivered by community health workers. So the theme of that project was to really understand the ecological conditions of extreme poverty in a number of different settings and understand practically how those actual conditions could be best faced uh, with uh, the means at hand. For example, as I mentioned, community health workers, uh, coming from these poor communities themselves train and using, and this was, uh, back in 2010, so it was pretty rudimentary, uh, basic, uh, phone based data systems, SMS, uh, at the start, uh, to report on malaria control or on the distribution of insecticide treated bed nets or, or on, uh, in creating a local system for antenatal visits. And the upshot of the work is that we have tools uh, that really work. They are often quite low cost and even low cost, highly effective tools are not deployed, especially in poor places uh, in a systematic uh, and scaled way it's a little bit of a paradox and it's often very sad that even practical very low-cost solutions go wanting but the idea of the project was to uh, test and uh, demonstrate the efficacy of these approaches and uh, at certain points uh, we really hit uh, the jackpot for example in uh, kenya we were working in Western Kenya in one of the village sites, a highly malarious site. And uh, this was back in 2005, I was championing the mass distribution of insecticide treated bed nets, which became routine, but at the time it was anything but routine. Uh, And we used the millennium village project to distribute bed nets on a mass basis for free to the whole community. And noted that the number of visits for malaria went down significantly. Uh, We were able to track uh, the uh, incidents using rapid diagnostic testing uh, and showed a very discernible effect. Not shocking because it was known that these methods work and also distributing uh, what are uh, called combination uh, therapies artemisinin based uh, therapies uh, for curing bouts of malaria well we brought the health minister uh, one of kenya's uh, leading politicians charity Ngilu, to the village site uh, she saw for her own eyes uh, like a very good politician walked into uh, a lot of uh, uh, the uh, households uh, uh, talked to the community and said, we we need to get bed nets out to uh, all of Kenya. Uh, And there was a mass distribution of bed nets in Kenya and a significant reduction of malaria incidence. And that success became a basis for WHO and then the UN Secretary General to issue the call for mass distribution of bed nets on an even larger scale. So that was one of the most fun, dynamics uh, of this project. And it really did change how uh, malaria was confronted in Africa, starting with the village uh, and uh, scaling up the lessons through politics, uh, through advocacy, through science based uh, demonstration, but scaling up the results and the Global Fund eventually uh, took on this uh, wonderful task of uh, a massive scale up of access to bed nets and artemisinin uh, cures and the effects have been substantial but (laughs) this process needs to keep being uh, deployed because malaria doesn't go away it's not eliminated or eradicated Uh, it just needs to be controlled consistently
0: thank you so much for sharing that insight And your book, The End of Poverty, has been highly influential in shaping the global development policy. Looking back on it now, what do you think have been the most important impacts? And are there any areas you would like to revise on or update your thinking on?
1: Well, I think the big impact was that it contributed to the idea that extreme poverty is not only to be managed, but is to be ended. And when the Sustainable Development Goals came along in 2015, uh, they called for the end of extreme poverty by 2030. I wrote that book in 2005, and I said by 2025, extreme poverty could be ended. I didn't predict it would be ended, but I said if we worked assiduously on it, uh, it, it would be. You know, one place where extreme poverty was ended was China. Uh, China was very poor in 1980, and it celebrated uh, the end of extreme poverty in 2020. It really provides a, a, a role model and, a, and even a roadmap, uh, though you can't exactly reproduce the Chinese experience, but it showed at the scale of a vast uh, economy, 1.4 billion people, it was actually possible to essentially get to zero. So the world has not taken on that challenge properly uh, in terms of implementation, though it's taken on the challenge rhetorically. Uh, Well, that's at least a little bit of a step forward because uh, we're directed towards the right purpose. So I continue to advocate for the financing solutions that need to be at the center of this because I've argued for uh, all of uh, my career, uh, but especially for the last 25 years that poor people need financing, whether it's for electrification, whether it is for malaria control uh, or uh, uh, health coverage. Uh, Whether it's to have children in school, we need realistic budgets and realistic financing because ending poverty is an investment. Uh, It's an investment process. Investment requires finance. We should know what we're doing, uh, how much is required, what kind of systems can be deployed. A lot of it is public investment, that is government-led investment. So uh, that tells us about how we can direct this effort but we still haven't cracked the funding problem. And I continue to work on that every day. I'm trying to press the G20 to step up development finance, especially the long-term lending of the multilateral development banks
0: as key to helping to get this job done. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And finally, shifting the focus to our listeners, What advice would you like to share with our students? Well,
1: if you're at LSE, boy, are you lucky. Uh, One of my favorite places in the whole world. Uh, I've been uh, visiting LSE for decades. The international feel and environment, the fact that you're together with students from all over the world, is such a joy and a gift. And really understand you'll make lifelong friends uh, you'll make uh, lifelong connections across the world and that's exactly as the world should be uh, it shouldn't be you know isolated pockets looking uh, warily and uh, viewing the others as great dangers it should be an interconnected world and lse is a, a unique venue for that it's just so good and so much fun Uh, and so international. So enjoy your studies, pursue your studies, and use your studies for good things, uh, for good things for the world.
0: Thank you for those advice. And thank you for your time to share your amazing insights with us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. Stay tuned for more future content.